0: Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush, the podcast where we get to know the scientists behind the research to find out they are jazzed about species evolving together and learning to become more patient, or that they don't really know what a bread box is. Hmm. Maybe that's just me, your host, Ben Rush. A rant up top. Technology, huh? Sometimes it's great, and other times it crashes on you, leaving you questioning everything you've done with your life. I didn't give my last sucker to Emily in second grade. Is this why the video chat crashed today? Technology can be frustrating, and this interview was no exception. Great interview, but the video chat dropped three or four times. With the magic of editing, it stitched together this episode with our wonderful guest, Anurag Agrawal. Like the technological phoenix, this episode rose from the digital ashes to drop knowledge on your noggin and also to give you this slick alternative theme song for today which i call giggles okay now you're back
1: sorry yeah uh i guess because recording on this end you think it probably just yeah it was fine right
0: oh yeah yeah no one will notice but again might just keep these in for for uh giggles gego 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 like it i'm looking forward to
1: seeing
0: what you do you it you you yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> Giggles. All right, Anurag, thank you for joining me on Deeper Than Data. Wonderful. Glad to be here. Excellent. So, to start, just like everything else, could you give us your name and the pronouns you prefer?
1: Anurag Agarwal.
0: He, him, his. Super. And a physical description of yourself.
1: Well, if I'm meeting somebody at the airport, I often tell them... uh Brown, bald, and big beard.
0: <laughs> yeah, the big beard seems to be a staple, I've noticed, through the through the years.
1: I haven't shaved since, I don't know, 1998 or something.
0: OK, awesome. Um, and then lastly, your positions in roles at Cornell.
1: Uh, I'm a faculty member or professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. I have a joint appointment in entomology. And um, that just means I conduct research on bugs and plants and ecology and evolution and teach classes, um, and advise students, that kind of thing. Super. That's my professional life.
0: Well, yeah, what are some of the roles that is not professional?
1: I'm certainly a father and a spouse, I would say. Um, okay. And uh, I spend a lot of time pruning um, woody shrubs outside my house also. That's like a semi-profession.
0: A shrubber, if you will. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Um, and the customer to everything else, could you give us a two minute research pitch what you do?
1: Sure. Um, I'm glad I'm totally unprepared for this. Um, well, I study the interactions between plants and the insects that eat them. Um, and uh, you know I, your listeners probably don't know this, but there's about 2 million described species. Um, on the planet, um, and a quarter of them are plants, um, and and then about a, a half of them are insects, and most of the insects are herbivorous, that is they eat um, plants. So I often justify the research I do that is on the interactions between plants and these bugs, because much of the biodiversity that's out there are plants and, and bugs. Um, and you, know, you can imagine in crop protection, as from an applied perspective, Um, we're often trying to control bugs on, on our crop plants so that my work touches on relevance for improved ways, non-chemical, non-pesticidal ways to control crop pests. Um, and in ecology, again, your listeners may or may not kind of be thinking about it this way, but plants are the ultimate uh, source of essentially all the energy in the kind of biosphere. You may not think of like birds or lions as relying on plants but they eat or, uh, organisms that eat other organisms that eat plants. Plants are the only organisms that take kind of nothing. They take sunlight, carbon dioxide, and water. Uh, they turn it into biological energy. So um, so I've made a living off of studying plants and the insects that eat them. And it takes me to faraway places that are interesting, to rainforests. It um, allows me to study things like the toxins in plants or the um, spices the things that make horseradish spicy or chili peppers Mm. hot or um, that make us high when we smoke cannabis or whatever it is Um, you know those we enjoy those compounds but i study them because they've been evolved by natural selection uh, to ward off insect pests and so i don't know there's just sort of a an intertwining i guess of Things that I think are important in nature, uh, things that are fascinating to me, um, things that connect with either agriculture or taste or smell or things that we might be able to appreciate.
0: Yeah. Do you root for one side or another, like the insects versus the plants?
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, I would say not in general, but like in a specific case, I might. (laughs) <laughs> um, if you know, if I'm looking about, you know, studying squashes and the striped cucumber beetle, I guess I'm rooting for the squashes. You know, um, one of the main topics of things that I study is something we call coevolution, which is the kind of back and forth. Um, it's the reciprocal adaptation that occurs when two species are interacting strongly over evolutionary time. Um, so particular plants and particular bugs might be co-evolving, the plants evolving defenses, and the bugs are evolving ways to exploit plants. And if you buy into that paradigm, then I guess rooting for one or the other uh, doesn't really make sense. They're you know uh, they're kind of mm-hmm. co-evolving together. and um, a famous evolutionary biologist once likened it to um, uh, Alice and the Red Queen, and you know Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. They're running in place, right? The Alice and the Red Queen are running super fast, and yet they seem to be standing still. They're not getting anywhere. And um, and Alice says to the Queen, um, Red Queen, you know, like, what's the deal? We haven't gotten anywhere. And she says, Well, in this place, you got to run as fast as you can just to stay in the same place. And coevolution is a little bit like that in the sense that if you're if the two organisms are going back and forth, then they're um, that maybe nobody's ever on top for very long.
0: <laughs> I feel like my my personal opinion um, for who to root for is whoever I can eat in the oh. end. yes, I like to play the game. If I'm walking through a forest or on a farm, like can I eat this? And I, you know, I don't just go around munching on random things to play it safe. But uh, I do enjoy whatever I can uh, forage out in the wild. So Super. if you're talking about like the the beetles versus the squash. I'm all squash. Okay, I'm going to start shifting back to the early days with the question of who was your first crush?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a. Um, it might be my grandmother. Um, I only <laughs> um, I only met my grandmother a couple of times. and the family story, anyways, is that um, she visited us from India in 1977. I must have been five. And the family story, of course, I don't remember. This is that. I kept saying I wanted to marry my grandmother, so I don't know what that exactly means, but um, <laughs> probably showered me with candy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. We might know the, the secret to your heart <laughs> right away. Chocolate. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. I'm absolutely the same way. Yeah, if you're you're not extremely close to Boston, I don't think, I don't know my East Coast that well, but there is a fantastic chocolate company, Taza, T-A-Z-A, Mm. Uh, that does stone ground uh, chocolate. Oh, um, nice gritty texture. A little sweet. You can go from you know, it's milk chocolate all the way to 100% dark.
1: Cool. I'm writing that down.
0: I, I apologize if you get sucked into it, but at the same time, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I'm curious too. I, I am a kid who was playing outside uh, in the mud mostly focusing on animals. I did notice you know some insects eating animals, but they you don't often hear about kids learning that plants are toxic or having this idea of plants being like these uh, chemical, chemical machinery factories. Um, did you have an early interest in plants as well? Was it balanced? Or did you start with insects and move into plants?
1: You know, as a kid, I don't really remember um, focusing on The organisms so much. I remember focusing mostly on being outside, and I think the organisms are were part of that. As you know, was my feet being in streams and that kind of thing. But um, and my mother um, is a pretty avid gardener, and I guess uh, and we had house plants and that kind of thing. So I I guess I sort of attribute um, my interest to that. And and I think there were a whole bunch of different things going on, like. You know, my parents didn't want me in the house and we, we took camping trips. They loved the outdoors, but also like, they didn't want to spend a lot of money on hotels and that kind of thing. Um, and then they were gardening. And so I think there was like a lot of that kind of stuff swirling around. I, like, I definitely like put bugs in jars and like tortured them, but I don't think I wasn't like one of these kids that was like pinning insects or identifying them or anything like that.
0: You like the alive stuff better.
1: <laughs> or tortured, yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tech, I, you know, technically that's learning. Uh, and did that, it's like, start? You know, maybe four or five, and continue on for quite some time.
1: Yeah, I would say I like I have memories of the of that kind of um, kindergarten, first grade time. I lived in like what I would call um, outside of suburban Pennsylvania. Like it was rural. Um, but like next to suburban and and pretty far from urban. And, um, so like in my neighborhood, you know, every 10 houses, after every 10 houses, there might be an empty lot where like, I don't know if somebody, I don't think it was unsold, but like somebody bought two lots or whatever. And there was a stream and there was some farm stuff. So, um, I think I was just around it, uh, since the early days. And, um, but I didn't really like discover biology until really my sophomore year in college, I would say.
0: And with that, was it kind of love at first sight?
1: No, it, um, it, 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 uh, it, it stems from a class whose name was called was, was, was the students had given the class, the name darkness at noon. And, um, <laughs> the story is that, um, in college, I was interested in, um, in, in social sciences and humanities. I thought I might be interested in law school or something like that. And, um, and the deal i made with my parents my parents are immigrants that came from india um they their primary kind of professions that they were let's say familiar with and felt comfortable with were medicine and engineering and when i kind of said i am kind of i'm gonna take a political science and econ class this semester that made them very uncomfortable um and so the deal that we made is that i would take science and math classes to uh, make sure I had something um, useful uh, as part of my college curriculum and then I could take whatever other classes I wanted. And so my sophomore year, I took introductory biology. We had this thing we called the SKU guide at the University of Pennsylvania, where I was an undergrad. It was like, it was a physical book at the time, it was like 1990. Um, and it was like listed courses and what students had said about them. And for introductory biology, there were, there were two sections of it that you could take. And, um, I was kind of looking for the easier course. And so, um, under the one that I ended up taking, it said, this professor comes late to class and leaves early. And so I thought, oh, that's the class for me. (laughs) (laughs) And then later I learned that other students called the class darkness at noon, because you'd show up at 1155 or whatever it was, and um, the lights would go down. And it was a one hour slideshow um, that was, this guy's, uh, this professor's uh, s- stories about biology to teach you introductory biology material. So, you know, the, um, the day that he was teaching us about the vertebrate digestive system, the slideshow was I found this roadkill bear. That's slide number one. Slide number two is the bear strung up at, at, at the professor's house. And then he proceeds to take a Swiss Army knife and dissect the bear and show you the vertebrate digestive system and while most of the students in this class were either asleep or horrified, I was like, yeah, (laughs) Um, (laughs) so um, I can't even remember what the question is now, but my kind of thinking that, oh, biology might be something I'm really interested in stemmed from me taking these science and math classes to kind of satisfy my, my parental contract and then stumbling into this intro bio class
0: were your were your parents like as you were starting to say like okay biology might be something for me how did they feel about that
1: um, it took them a couple of years I mean I think had I said I was interested in in biotechnology or genetics or something like that maybe that would have been um, but I was talking to them about um, you know, why strawberry plants have runners and make seeds, you know, it was sort of a different kind of biology that mm-hmm. um, they were familiar with. Um, in their, you know, defense, I would say, um, although they have always been kind of cautious about the unknown, um, I'd say that, you know, like the really good advice I got from them was, um, well, if you think you're really interested in that, try it, do it, get an internship, that kind of thing. So my first transition was from kind of thinking about law school to thinking about environmental law. Like after I took that class, I don't remember whose idea this was, but I thought like, okay, maybe I could combine um, the roadkill bear with my interest in social science (laughs) by doing environmental law. And I took an environmental law class and I talked to the professor and all that kind of thing. And and basically that came down, you know, for me, I learned through that that, environmental lawyers like really had their heart in the right place or in the, in the same place as, as my heart in some ways wanting to improve the environment or, um, but they weren't out there in the field. They weren't, um, you know, they were doing the legal side of the environmental cause. Um, whereas I, I was taking that class and talking to the environmental law prof convinced me that I wanted to be doing the biology Um, uh, more so than doing the um, legal stuff.
0: So I'm trying to put the timeline together. You were probably figuring this out a little bit towards the end of undergrad. Uh, Did you do some of those internships in between, or did you go right into graduate school?
1: Yeah, I mean... um... We'll probably get to this later, but um, I used to be the most impatient person I knew. I'm, I'm no longer, fortunately, <laughs> but I think that like that happened when I was a sophomore, and um, and then I don't know when I like, maybe in the next semester or whatever. I figured environmental law wasn't for me or whatever, so I started doing the the biology internship stuff pretty soon after. Um, I think summer after my junior year, I spent at a field station. Uh, where uh, in the mountains of Virginia called Mountain Lake Biological Station. And I was, you know, that was like immersion in ecology in the field environment with, I don't know, 50 other students and many profs that study ecology. And I think that kind of sealed the deal for me.
0: Cool. And then kept going into biology as, did you go into something that was like more uh, ecology and evolution oriented?
1: Yeah. So basically, I took advantage of the classes they had at Penn. It's, it's an urban campus, but there was animal behavior. We went to the zoo. There was plant ecology. We did it out of the textbook. Um, and I went to then graduate school um, at uh, University of California at Davis. I was in what's called the population biology graduate group, but that's you know more or less a sister discipline to ecology and evolutionary biology.
0: Perhaps this was the time that you started to notice management styles in different people's labs. Because As I was looking at your lab's website, there seems to be a really integral part of having a really welcoming environment, um, inviting people, per, I'm, I'm guessing it's your space, or someone's random house. Um, um, I'm curious like, if that was something that grew with you through graduate school, perhaps in undergrad, or if kind of this value of family and closeness was always there.
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know what to say about that. My graduate school experience was certainly um, very immersive. And what I mean by that is it was a small town. Davis is is a lot like Ithaca, New York, you know, 30, 40,000 people or whatever. Um, The university was sort of um, had a big presence in the town and the graduate program I was in was very was big. There were, you know, many, many graduate students. And so, you know, many of us lived together partied together studied together did research together so i would say um, for better or for worse certainly since graduate school i have been um more or less a mixer and by that i mean like my personal and professional life are um reasonably intertwined i'd say it's the least so for me now that's something we can talk about if we want to later but I've convinced myself it's in part because I love doing the professional things I do and, you know, botanists and ecologists are nicer people. And so we just kind of (laughs) all hang out. But um, but, you know, I think that, yeah, that's that that kind of intermixing has been has been a part of my experience. Um, um, Having said that, you know, having kids getting older whatever, there's I probably have more separation. From my lab now than I used to. It's not. I mean, we still might have dinners at my place, go for hikes together, etc. Um, but I, I cherish the friends I have that are not in my discipline and um, my running partners, whatever. And yeah,
0: yeah. Do you recommend to have more of a separation or a bit of a mixture for your grad students now?
1: I think that's a very, very personal decision. You know, um, and I respect the extremes. Um, it's hard for me to relate to somebody that like needs to have a nine to five or an eight to six or whatever it is kind of work life and home life. It's hard for me to relate to that, but I totally can see it's importance for a particular person. You know, and I think, you know, I'm not somebody that, uh, has trouble falling asleep because I'm thinking about work, or will wake up in the middle of the night with work anxiety. But I know many people that do. And so I think that's just to say that I think people have different levels of comfort of intertwining and separation. And um, I I don't think I would be comfortable giving somebody advice about that. Um, What I would the advice I always give, though, is uh, experiment on yourself. Like, try it, you know, try the separation for two weeks and see what happens.
0: I'm just imagining that scenario uh, if someone's at work and, like, hey, I just need to take a break from you for two weeks, um, no communication after five. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe the source of my problems. I'm not entirely sure. We'll find out. Yeah. Um, there'll be more delicate ways to do that. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting to know. Like, I, I feel like I've become a person, you know, especially with working at home, who does like to blend things together. And I started out feeling a little guilty for, you know, either working on this or like some comedy stuff um, to take five minutes in between like 10 and 11 to write down an idea. And then it's like, okay, I have to make up this time later on somehow. Yeah. But I think in the end, if you're getting your projects done in your way, it's going to be productive. Um, and even something like this is going to translate. Uh, Tomorrow I'm hosting someone for the department, so it makes total sense. Now we're in California. Did you wrap up grad school and head to somewhere completely different?
1: Yeah. um, I had a short postdoc in in Amsterdam. um, And um, I think by the time I left for that, I had a job lined up at the University of Toronto in the botany department. Um, That department no longer exists. Um, But so... um, my yeah, that was my trajectory. Uh, Holland for for six months, um, and then I was at the University of Toronto for four and a half years, and then I moved to Cornell in um, 2004.
0: Were there any major uh, adjustments that you had to go in between all these different spaces?
1: Well, that's an open-ended question. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I
1: would say um, I loved living in California, both for um, as a grad student, both I think cause I never lived in, in, uh, in the West. And I think that, you know, I was totally free from my family <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and um, you know, the produce was unbelievable. I'll skip Holland just cause that was a relatively short stay. I'd say Toronto, you know, the, the big shifts there for me were, it was really urban living you was know, a city of uh, three to 5 million people. And with all of the benefits in terms of incredible spice markets and um, international food and, Public transportation, um, great university for my, you know, for, for my area and my department. Um, but that was a transition in terms of lifestyle, uh, and then I'd say professionally, you know, the the transition from graduate school to to for, to faculty member for me was, um, you know, essentially starting over. And and I don't mean that in a in a really negative way, but like, your first few years as a faculty member, you're kind of charged with. Developing a new research program, um, you know, that's somewhat distinct from what you did for your uh, grad work, and right—that's um, just a big transition. And it was certainly there was a bunch of management. Then you have hire, you're hiring people, you have students and whatnot. Um, so you know, some growing up that happened in there.
0: <laughs> yeah, were there any uh, particular struggles that come to mind when you think about the early days?
1: Well, all kinds of struggles. I mean, um, the two that I'll mention quickly, um, uh, I taught a class called Community Ecology, you know, one of the first year or two, I was at the University of Toronto, and at the end of the semester, the chairperson of the department came into my office and said, you know, how did Community Ecology go? And I said, oh, great, yeah, I liked it. And he said, "Uh, well, um, you know, uh, how was your rapport with the students? And I said, oh, yeah, pretty good, you know. Had thirty-five students said, oh, that didn't work, and so then he's kind of looking at me puzzled, and he goes, "They hated you. They hated you so much they yeah. wrote to the dean. They, you know, and I, and it was incredible. Like I was just, um, yeah, you know, it's not what I was expecting. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> the semester was over. It's like how how can I be so clueless? But um, I think you know." It's not like I was out to fix the educational system, but I sort of felt like, okay, here we are. We're at the University of Toronto. We have good students. I'm going to teach them. I'm going to ask them hard questions. If they ask me for an extension on a assignment, I'll ask them why. If it's not a good excuse, I'll say too bad, you know. <laughs> um, and so um, I had to learn how to be um, a more, let's say, welcoming, accepting, um, nuanced uh, faculty member um instructor of courses and you know the pearl of wisdom that this guy had for me was that he's like well make assignments due on friday if a student asks for an extension give them till monday and what you'll find he said is that out of the five students that ask only one will actually turn it in on monday because they had a something really came up in their life and they'll turn in something good and the other four won't turn it in or they'll turn in crap and it won't matter and that's turned out to basically be true, um, at least in my experience. So um, so I'd say like there was just the growing up of instruction.
0: Do you have a particular management style or uh, culture that you like to have with your lab?
1: Well, um, there's what I say I think I have or that I like to have, and then, I guess you'd have to ask others whether it's actually, you know, kind of realized in that way. Um, in general, I try not to ever worry or wonder whether people are working hard enough. And I, in other words, I kind of I'm okay with people having different work schedules, and um, and people certainly at different levels of efficiency and all of that. So I'm not sort of a FaceTime kind of person. Um, I would say that um, I'm, you know, I push people pretty hard um, to do great science or to try to do great science. And um, and that's a challenge. And I think it's um, it's very hard for me to, you know, support kind of doing the minimum for a, for a phd or for a thesis um, and 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 i i mean there is a minimum and i understand what that is but um i don't tend to work well with people that are kind of shooting for the minimum um, mm-hmm. and you know i'm that's just a little bit the way i am and some of it's you know that i feel like we're at this incredible institution with all these resources um, if we can't really push the envelope then there's something wrong Um, and some of it's that I just really love to think about the frontier pushing the envelope um, uh, and that kind of thing so uh, I do push people um, and I'd say it's less like saying you know I need these results by the end of next week but more when somebody is showing me data sort of thinking about all the alternative explanations and do we need to do more controls or um, thinking about that data is pretty interesting what would it take to take it to the next level to really um you know have some kind of transformative results or something that would advance theory in ecology and evolution more or whatever um i'm not sure if i've really answered your question i mean i tend to be a little more hands-on i think than some of my colleagues and that again it's not kind of by decision. I'd say it's more just a little bit how I am. Like if people are working in my lab, then I tend to like really be interested in what they're doing and want to talk about it and and, and kind of advance it. And, um, you know, as with any relationship, it's a takes two to tango. So I think I've been trying to be more and more honest with new people in the lab to let them know my style so that we can figure out if I'm a good match for them or not. Um,
0: Yeah. And I'm sure that can sometimes be a bit of an awkward conversation. I feel like sometimes the reality of like, yeah, I'm going to push you um, and this is my natural tendency, like it's not, we don't often get that honest conversation I think upfront, but it's so valuable in the end. I'm sure you've probably had, maybe you've had thanks and also I'm sure other people have thanked you and at least in their heads of being like, oh, I'm glad I knew this at the very beginning
1: yeah although i think it's really hard like most people, if i tell when i tell people like i'm somebody that pushes like most people start of saying great that's why i'm coming to grad school <laughs> um so i you know i don't really know what happens behind the scenes but i always encourage the prospective students and postdocs to talk to the others in the lab um to get a you know to get an inside um uh, scoop and i think you know it really is that match you know i think there's there, are stu- you're, there Lab members that would thrive more uh, with more hands off, and there's lab members that'll thrive more with a little more direction, and so you got to figure out that combination, right? And
0: I feel like for the beginning of my like scientific career, and I think with others too, there's a fusion of an individual's work with their personality, and so when you go back with scientific feedback. It's hard to, I think, sometimes disentangle that and say, you know, your science may be lacking a little bit here. Or here's something we need to follow up. But as a person, you are pretty great. Um. Do, yeah. Do you have like skills or strategies to try to mitigate that, especially with like someone who's new in science?
1: I would say I'm I'm doing an experiment right now, um, and it's uh, it's through a long term friendship with a um, an, well, a sociologist that I know that I'm friends with. Um. And that is, I think, with my pushing um, in the past, it was sometimes unclear to people in my lab whether um, you know, I had their back or I was supportive of them or um, that I had their best interest in heart. And if that happens, it's like such an incredible disaster because on the one end, I'm losing sleep trying to think about how to best advise a student because I really do care. Um, and they think, "Huh, I wonder if he doesn't have my best interest at heart." So the mm-hmm. experiment that I'm trying now, um, based on this long-term influence of a friend, is from the beginning to let them know, uh, people that come into my lab, uh, that I will always be their advocate. That um, my I see it as my job. You know, uh, I'm not going to lie on letters of recommendation, but I'm going to sing your praises. Um, yeah. And but at the same time to let them know that, um, I'm going to be critical and, um, I'm going to push and, um, that it's because I believe in you that I'm doing that. And, um, so I'm just trying to be a little more explicit because I think in the past, when I welcomed somebody new in the lab, I wouldn't say, you know, I would look them in the eye and say, I'm always going to be your advocate, but I do now. And I, and I, 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 I meant it before. Um, And that might be just something that also comes a little bit with age and with being a parent. Like maybe I feel more comfortable saying that now or whatever, but um, I'm trying to up my actual support and them knowing of my support at the same time, give more honesty in my feedback.
0: I definitely appreciate that. And that's exactly what I've tried to do with undergrads. I think there's sometimes, um, even on my end, when I say that explicitly, I think there's Maybe a bit of like cultural resistance within me or a little bit of uncomfort because it's uncommon and I I don't I don't think it would be considered kind of like the quote unquote like hippie kind of mentoring, but I don't think there's a lot of praise yet on that kind of this emotional support that is necessary for actual productivity.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree.
0: Has your support gone up as your impatience has gone down? Or have have those two interacted as you're saying you're the most um, uh, impatient person that you used to know?
1: Definitely, it's that's you know, absolutely. Um, um, as I've become more patient, it's been easier for me to be more supportive, yes. Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, <laughs> easy <laughs> enough. Um, one thing that does require a little bit of patience or slowing down is getting out into uh, the woods, checking out and writing about. A blog, which I see on your lab's website, uh, is that mostly you? Do you have a team that answers a lot of community uh, questions that go to you?
1: No, I, I mostly do that. I mean, it's and it's it's on and off, it fits and starts, um, but um, that's a little bit part of my intertwining, um, you know, personal and professional life. I'm I'm often trying to get my neighbors, um, or family, or others out in the woods because I just like to go. And I live in a place where there's a lot of natural areas that are accessible. Um, I love to take pictures, and so then if I'm going out, I'm taking pictures. Um, apparently, I like to write also, and so <laughs> it's just a way to share. And um,
0: and have you? How long have you been doing
1: that? Four years or something like that. I, I don't exactly know. Yeah, and like I said, there's times when uh, it's been more or less. Um, kind of active you know probably started um i wrote a a kind of a popular science book called monarchs and milkweed and um probably the publisher at at the time you know four years ago encouraged me to have some regular material that was coming out associated with uh, that might be related to monarchs and milkweed that would kind of draw some um, interest and my guess is that was largely a failure in terms of it, I, I, there's, I don't have a following of like you know, monarch and milkweed uh, lovers that follow my blog, but it just kind of got me in the routine of writing about experiences in, in the field and in nature, et cetera.
0: Yeah, and that's actually something I want to ask you about, too. So my research is trying to figure out better ways to establish bioimaging biomarkers for muscle health. I don't have a lot of fans from the public coming to me um, to ask me just questions about how it all works. But based on some of your videos and like the website blogs, you do have community members coming to you. Um, what is the monarch and milkweed community like? Um,
1: good question. But before I answer when you say muscle health, do you mean like yeah. um, those aquatic invertebrates or do you mean like uh, your mus- like human muscles?
0: <laughs> I mean good old humans. Okay, yeah. got it. Um, but a lot of the same techniques can be uh, used on... Uh, other animals. There's actually someone that I think, you know, thanks to Twitter, uh, I've connected with a little bit who uses ultrasound like I do to look at fish gonads, cool. um, and also I think there's some people who use uh, similar methods to look at polar bear fat fat thickness. So interesting. Uh, there's yeah, lots of applications. I just do the do the humans.
1: So to answer your question, the Monarch and Milkweed community is a super interesting one. Um, it's not something I set out to do to connect with that community. I would say it's enriched my professional life in terms of by working on something that people actually care about. Um, you know, it's it's just that's a really it's turned out to be a really positive thing, even though you know it's not always feels that way in the moment or whatever. It's an interesting bunch. I would say that the the most common denominator is that people want to help, that people see monarchs of milkweeds, non-scientists that I interact with, see monarchs of milkweeds as um, sentinels of nature, icons of nature, that they can see, they can plant, they can uh, rear, um, and they want to do that because it's interesting biology, but by and large, because they want to help. That is very positive on the one hand, um, but it has also generated some conflicts, I would say, or um, uh, issues in the sense that, as an example, I professionally speaking, I don't think that we should be mass rearing monarchs to help their their decline or to help with their conservation. And so, It's a very roundabout way of saying, it's a very interesting group of people. They're interested in, in typically, in environmental conservation. And it's been very positive for me to connect with them, um, that community, but there have been interesting um, conflicts there.
0: I'm curious too about those conflicts, like how you navigate those. So my undergraduate and master's was at Indiana University, Bloomington. Cool. Um, During my time, there was a huge population boom in deer. Uh, yeah. Where they're starting to really destroy a lot of the forests, scientists are arguing, okay, we should cull some of these, you know, use this as a food source for people. Um, community members are saying, okay, let's not hunt deer. I can see both sides. As the on, on the more scientist side, that's like kind of where I lean. But I'm I'm curious, like, if you are in between those two arguments, similar to monarchs, like, how do you walk that line?
1: Well, I tend to play the scientist, I would say, in that um, it's just, I'm a, I'm a bit of a data person and, <laughs> and that's my professional role. Um, I guess what I'd say is the main way I try to walk the line, though, is um, trying to be respectful, um, understanding the various sides. And, um, you know, I, I gave a, a public presentation on Zoom a couple weeks ago. To a group of, uh, of monarch and milkweed enthusiasts, and I actually I got criticism afterwards from uh, some folks that said, "Why are you? Why did you speak to that group? They advocate mass rearing of monarchs, and you know that is not a scientifically sound approach." Um, and I didn't really know that that group advocated mass rearing of monarchs, but during that public discussion it came up you know what is my position on that or whatever and i was very honest about it i don't think i offended anybody i hope i didn't um, but i did give my scientific opinion but my argument against mass wearing them is that um, it might make us feel good but um, there's some possibility of introducing disease or genetic um, variants into the population that we don't want to or mean to and in addition it's a funny kind of band-aid to be mass rearing these butterflies i mean i always make the analogy that like the the monarchs are declining and it's a little bit like a sink that has a leak and the water is draining out of the the filled sink and so mass rearing monarchs is like adding a little you know adding a quarter cup of water to the sink that's draining um hoping that by adding a little bit more water it won't you know it won't Keep draining. But of course, it's going to keep draining. The problem is something out there relating to human activities that are causing the butterfly to decline.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's an interesting point, though, too. One, because, you know, I just feel like these days, especially in the US, everything is polarized. And so even, you know, this scientific point or discussion is polarized and it, from my perspective like it's a benefit that you went there just to have this conversation and it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to change anyone's minds but at least they're gonna see your side of things um, and you can hopefully see their side and then you just get some mutual understanding and respect your your point to saying like this band-aid too it makes me think of pandas and polar bears uh, they are you know important species uh, and usually like the big hallmarks of conservation I want to advocate for saving sharks as much as I possibly can <laughs> but sharks aren't the cute fuzzy things that always get people's attention yeah, it's a it's a hard hard position because I would imagine there may be some part of you that says, okay, yeah mass rearing of monarchs not the most efficient way, but maybe it gets people interested in conservation
1: exactly. and yeah. that's why I always encourage people to rear a couple as opposed to. <laughs> Um, the hundreds or thousands or whatever
0: yeah yeah so i'm gonna to go to some more open-ended questions as kind of just like a reflection what is a piece of advice you wish you knew at the beginning of your career well i probably
1: knew this but i think it can't you know maybe be said enough you know, take it seriously uh, but don't take it too seriously um, <laughs> and you know i mean maybe that's just true for everything in life i don't know i mean um it's easy to get wrapped up and to sort of put a lot of eggs in one particular basket or whatever, but take it seriously, but not too seriously.
0: Yeah. And with that, too, you're saying like not putting too many eggs in one basket makes me think of pivots in life. Oftentimes, I think failures can seem as a time for a pivot later on in reflection. Have you, are there any failures that you think were like really critical to your success or led you down a completely different journey than you're expecting?
1: I mean, I failed, you know, as a scientist, rejection is just a total uh, way of life. And I don't know if rejection in terms of grants or papers is a form of failure. I suppose it is at some level. Um, So I've just internalized and accepted uh, very regular uh, failure um, in that regard. Um, You know, some people, some of my colleagues are, are, you know, may, you know, fight every rejection. They, They get a rejection from a particular journal that they've submitted study to and um they if it, you know, they fight it every you know and, and i'm not like that i tend to sort of accept um if they didn't want to publish it they find flaws with it that's fine i'll sort of move on to some other venue but i would say maybe once every two to five years so maybe five times in my career you know the rejection has seemed so uh, outlandish that i have written back to the editor and said are you sure you want to do this like you you can, and that's fine, but like this seems a little strange for these reasons. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess that's that's paid off for me once or twice, but that, that's not really a pivot. That's sort of, again, like taking it seriously, but not too seriously, like trying to accept the rejections for what they are, except when they seem just so blatantly wrong or something didn't go right in the process.
0: Interesting. Um, I'm curious is there a personality trait that you really enjoy about yourself? Uh, and is there one that you'd like to improve?
1: I'm constantly working on my patience. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. um, and I, uh, So that's, I'd say, I'd like to improve it, and I'm, uh, i working on it. I mean, personality traits that I like. I don't know. I mean, I, uh, most of them. It's just who I am. I, you know, I think, uh, as you can tell, I'm wildly funny. Um, and. Um, <laughs> um, um,
0: yeah, going into that funniness, too, I, I would consider myself a funny person. So, well, I'm not going to do like a, a, a funny off or anything like that. But it just makes me think like your comment before is just not taking everything too seriously. If you can be in the spot where you can laugh at yourself, it's really healthy. It's harder, I think, to translate to rejections from grants. But even sometimes like if you read over something that's like really old, you're like, wow, that was terrible. Um mm-hmm. I can't believe it got funded or like, oh, I can totally tell why it got rejected. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have like some lightness with your life in general?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm a I think I'm a very thick skinned person. Um, and I attribute that to my mother, genes, and environment in that case. Um <laughs> I'd say that at least has some potential to generate some lightness in the sense that yeah. um rejection never feels good to me. But I try not to let it sort of take over my week or whatever, and um, I- I'm getting a little into bonsai. Um, and one of oh. the, <laughs> one of the approaches to bonsai is to is to dig up what some people call potensai, which is um, you know like a woody shrub that's growing out in the field, stunted somewhere. You go dig it up, and it's kind of two thirds of the way to being bonsai. It's a potential bonsai. And so I was out with a, this a friend of mine um, a couple weekends ago, we were digging up some um, and I uh, I left my sweatshirt on his um, car. And then, you know, I realized later that it's just out there on the street somewhere. Um, and I was like, Oh, you know, whatever, I'll, I'll get it later. And he was like, you're not upset about that. And I was like, I don't know, it's my sweatshirt. I'll get it later. You know? So if that's lightness, um, I guess I have some, but
0: yeah. That's like a potent sweatshirt. That's a potential sweatshirt for anyone else who wants it. How do you, or is there anything that you would take from the field of ecology and apply as a parent? Yeah, I'm not
1: sure I know what you mean, but I guess I'd say that like, I definitely think that uh, we are animals that are more or less obeying the same rules of the organisms that I study in my lab. And... Um, you know, I don't, I don't. I guess I don't really believe that there's fundamental differences um, between the plants and bugs I study and um, the dynamics in my household. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And you know, at some level, there's some things that are universal. Trade-offs are universal. That is, when an or, you know, when an organism or a person does one thing or invests in one direction, they typically can't do something else or invest in some other direction.
0: Yeah, hopefully fewer cardiac glycosides uh, <laughs> in the family life. <laughs> All right, I will do one last question before we go to our game. I haven't asked this question before yet, so I'm curious what you think. What do you want to be when you grow up?
1: Well, I want to be somebody that's uh, well-rounded and satisfied. I want to be somebody that uh, takes pleasure in different things and... Um, Wow, I can't believe I'm about to say this. That is accepting of my own mortality, um, <laughs> yeah, and that uh, kind of makes decisions that I can feel good about.
0: Fantastic! I, I would follow up to that too. Um, so I had my thirtieth birthday not too long ago, and because it's COVID, and I wanted to celebrate. Also, I'm in Wisconsin, so you know you can't do much in winter time. Um, but what I did, I, I walked 30 miles across Madison. To see people, and I asked them uh, as a way for me to cheat and steal what they answered as well. Uh, how what, or what does it look like when you've made it? It's about personal satisfaction, I guess.
1: And I think that that looks very different for different people. It's something I'd say I think about um, a reasonable amount.
0: Yes. Yeah, I think your your answer previously of being pretty satisfied res- with yourself um, was one that I heard a lot from people I like the accepting your own mortality um, as a young person I haven't really thought about that too much but I you know it's gonna happen I think it's and it's something that's not discussed in our culture a lot um, yeah. but I think it's something that we'd all benefit from remembering that we might perish tomorrow oh. so live today a little bit more uh, filled with something. I don't know why, but filled with something. All right, I am going to move on to our game. So it's going to be something completely improvised. Uh, But before I tell you what we're exactly going to do, I'm going to need four suggestions from you. So the first thing, uh, I need a suggestion for a tool.
1: A hammer is what came into my mind.
0: All right, hammer. Uh, an article of clothing. Underwear. Underwear. We'll see if this backfires. <laughs> um, a band. Pink like Floyd. Musical band. Pink Floyd. All right. And a dangerous animal.
1: Uh, snake.
0: Snake. Okay. All right. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to improv a two-minute scene in a scenario, uh, which I will describe shortly. Um, and we must reference each thing that we've provided in the scene. So we need to reference uh, a hammer, underwear, pink Floyd, and a snake somewhere in this scene. We've got two minutes to do it. Okay. And the scene is you and I are in the field collecting milkweed leaf samples, and we come across a cocoon of a monarch unlike anything we've seen before. I can start. All right, here we go. Ah, it's Such a nice summer day to be out collecting these samples. Thanks for taking me out here. Definitely.
1: Uh, happy to be here. It's like being on the dark side of the moon.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it is pretty trippy. And speaking of trippy stuff, have you seen this cocoon over here, this monarch? Crazy.
1: Uh, you know, we like to call them chrysalids. Um, but they're also could could be called cocoons. It looks like, uh, gosh, looks like that's been maybe bitten by a snake. Is that possible?
0: Maybe that's why it looks so strange. You know, as we're staring at it, it's getting larger and larger. I brought this hammer. Do you think we should just nail into it, let it break it open, see what happens? Definitely. Let me
1: pull some nails out of my underwear. I have some nails here. If you hand me that hammer, uh, I'll chisel away and see what's inside.
0: Okay, here you go. I'm glad I brought this. I heard about uh, you always keeping extra nails in your underwear from some of your students in lecture.
1: Yes, do you have that microscope that you normally keep in your ear? Because once I chisel it open, it might be nice to put the pieces under that microscope.
0: Oh yeah, the little mini one? Here here you are. Yeah, and this is solar powered too um so we're not gonna have any issues at all and luckily i keep that solar power in my other year
1: <laughs> very good you know it looks like it has some parasitic wasps and it. it wasn't a snake after all this monarch chrysalis uh, uh do you know about uh, about parasitoids
0: oh i love them
1: yeah it, they're like the, they're like aliens they lay their eggs in the in the in the chrysalis they eat it from the inside out and then they well, now that we've chiseled this open, that won't happen, but they would have burst open the wasps, the next generation of wasps.
0: Which I think is pretty cool. I, I was a little scared at first because we were going to possibly, I I know these parasitoids don't get to us, but I was a little afraid since this was growing so rapidly, there might be kind of something freaky in there.
1: Definitely. Well, you know what they say, you know, there is no dark side of the moon. It's really just all dark.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um okay. Awesome. That was fun. We're going to now, the twist. Um, we're going to actually reenact that scene, but we're gonna do it in one minute. All right. right. Okay.
1: But but we're supposed to follow the same uh idiotic um,
0: <laughs> scenario. <laughs> I mean some would, might say uh masterful, uh really wonderful improvisational scene on the fly, um, but also idiotic scene, yeah. Very good. Okay, alright. Hey, thanks for taking me out here on the field. My pleasure. Here we are collecting monarchs of milkweed. Yeah, wow. This is such a great summer day. It's really like the dark side of the moon. Totally, dude.
1: Hey, check out this monarch
0: chrysalis. Whoa, that is weird that it's grown so much, and it's got a lot of holes in there, possibly from I don't know maybe a snake
1: it would seem that maybe a snake has bitten it shall we check it out
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah here's the hammer my trusty oh, yeah. hammer
1: perfect i have nails in my underwear let me pull those out
0: perfect um yeah we should investigate how this happened so here's this microscope uh from my right ear and the handy dandy solar battery from my left
1: wonderful i'll chisel it open uh whoo Looks like instead of a snake bite, this has
0: parasitoids. Oh, and I love parasitoids. I was a little worried that it was going to affect us, but gladly it's just the caterpillars possibly inside. Rock on. (laughs) Okay, awesome. How'd that feel? Very good. (laughs) Okay, great, because we're going to do it one more time. Oh, no. Actually, maybe more than one more time. We're going to try to do that scene in 30 seconds. All right. Okay. Wow. What a great day to be out here in the field. Check out that monarch over there. Chrysalis. Yeah. Let's smash it with his hammer.
1: (laughs) Good thing I have nails in my underwear. Let me uh, grab those for you. You got
0: a microscope? You bet I do. My right ear microscope, left ear solar panel. Typical Ben. Wow. If we uh, look through that
1: solar, look through that microscope, we might see the dark side of the moon, but let me uh, chisel away at the chrysalis
0: first. Oh, that looks like parasoid wasp injections in the chrysalis. No snake here. Rock on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Final challenge. Can we do this in fifteen seconds? Here we go. Here we go. Wow! Look at that crazy chrysalis in this summer day. Dark side of the yep. moon. Give me, give me a hammer. Let's <laughs> smash it open. <laughs> uh, I'm. Give me those nails. Uh, let's yep. throw it underneath the microscope for my ear.
1: All right, let me check my underwear. I got the nails there.
0: <laughs> cool, rock on. Parasitoids. All right. <laughs> nice. Ah, that was good. Thanks for playing along with that. I'm always curious to uh, see how people respond to these improvised games. Everyone's Everyone's been up to it, which has been super fun. Good, yes. Awesome. Um. Yeah, with that, I just want to thank you for being on Deeper Than Data with me. It's been a blast. Uh, great conversations. I feel like I we learned a lot um, and we also had some great improvisation and threw in some cool facts.
1: like it, yes. I, I'm looking forward to
0: seeing what you edit this down to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so Anurag, thanks for being on here and I hope to talk to you soon. My pleasure, thank you. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush. I hope you rock on, dudes. Please do not keep nails in your underwear. Please. I'm begging you. I do not need another lawsuit about this. Seriously. Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush was produced and created by me, Ben Rush. Music by me, Ben Rush. Sick Beats Giggles version, also by me, Ben Rush. Until next time, be well.